0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of our Digital Dialogue series, where we've been speaking with and learning from some amazing thinkers, organizers and activists all about land, our relationship to land, as well as issues of food sovereignty, indigenous land rematriation and relational accountability. My name is Sarah Rotz and I'm part of the Rare Collective, which is a group of settler and indigenous researchers, food activists, farmers, and teachers who have been working together on this project and who have made this series possible. You'll hear many of their voices throughout the series. So today for our third episode, Adrienne Lickers Xavier and I will be speaking with Dr. Eva Jewell, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at X University and the Research Director at the Yellowhead Institute. We're also going to be speaking with her mother, Nancy DeLeary. We'll be speaking with them today about rematriation and land back and the role of language and Indigenous food sovereignty. We also spoke about accountability, responsibility and reciprocity in our relationships with one another other than human beings in the land. So, thanks for being with us here today and sharing in these important conversations. Alright. Um Boujo. Eva Jewel Shaganashi no Swin Deshkan my English name is Eva Jewel, and I am from Deshkanziping, and I'm from
1: the Wolf clan. Um, Nancy Deleri and Dishna Deshkanziping Deshgan Ziping and Nishna Bekwe my name, my English name is Nancy Delary. I'm from the Chippewas of the Thames First Nation. I am Anishinaabe a woman and I am from the Loon Clan.
0: And a little bit about us um, Nancy is my mother. So mm-hmm. I'm so excited to be in dialogue. So I'll share a little bit about my background and then do you want to share a bit about yours as okay. well? Mm-hmm. Um, So, I am an assistant professor at X university formerly Ryerson University, to be called something else, which is very exciting, and I am a research director at uh, the Yellowhead Institute, and my work is focused on the reclamation of Anishinaabe ways of being, uh, specifically in governance, and um, as well as uh, reconciliation, been doing some critical work on reconciliation, and supporting uh, my own community in a lot of their um, in a lot of their uh, governance work as well. So law development, governance, constitutional work, things like that. Uh, and so that's
1: about it. Yeah. You it? Okay. Um, uh, Eva and I were just talking about how tomorrow, September 11th, is going to be 20 years uh, since uh, uh, I had uh, taken my family and moved down to Santa Fe, New Mexico to um, for me to go to school. I had uh, always been an artist all my life. Um, I graduated high school, but I didn't go to college. Um, well, actually, I did try, but I was so shy. After three months I quit and I was up in um, Sudbury. So um, here I was, um, 40 years old, I had young teenagers, uh, just starting to be teenagers, uh, my four children, and um, I did not have any skills to get a job. And so the only thing I knew was art and um, I didn't want to go to school in London, Ontario because I had faced so much racism when I was in high school, that I didn't want nothing to do with London. But I wanted to learn more about who I am because I had no idea what a Chippewa was. Uh, I had no idea of my culture. Um, my mother spoke our language, but um, we weren't really successful in, in, in her transferring that knowledge to us uh, due to a lot of the um, trauma that we were living through on the reserve. And so um, it was... I had heard about the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So I called them up, they accepted me, told me to move down there. So that's what we did. And we were on the road 20 years ago tomorrow. And we were all in the truck, trucks, and we had stopped at a um, truck stop. And that's when we had learned about uh, 9-11 and the planes uh, smashing into the buildings. That was a really, really um, traumatizing and momental moment for us. We had to talk to each other as a family on what we were going to do, and we decided to keep going. And so it was then that we kept going. We went to Santa Fe. I started school. My kids all started school there, and all all of that, in that 20 years, um, I earned my associate's degree, my bachelor's degree, and then I went on to get my master's of fine arts degree in Vermont. And um, now I have my dream job on Chippewa. I am the culture coordinator. Uh, this is a brand new position that we've had uh, have the opportunity to have on our First Nation. And the only reason why we have this position is because we had won a land claim. And this land claim made it so that we do not totally have to depend on the Department of Indian Affairs or whatever they're called right now because they did not foster culture, language, and heritage um, at all. In fact, we were supposed to learn all that. Uh, 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 We were supposed to forget all that. So with the trust monies that we won from our Big Bear Creek land claim, we're able to invest in ourselves. And so that's what pays for my department, um, pays for our programming. And what we're doing is a lot of great works in culture revitalization, language revitalization, and we're just able to now touch on heritage. Um, But we have a lot of work to do and we need a lot of help. And, but we're doing it.
0: Thanks so much for um, for sharing that and and maybe um, I'll just sort of jump in and and just ask about um, if if the two of you could maybe share a little bit little bit about your your relationship to land um, so maybe a bit about how it's changed over time um, and this idea of um, or maybe you know process principles practice of of rematriation um if there's if there's ways in which you want to connect rematriation at all to you to how you think about or or relate to land and possibly how that's changed over time do you want to talk about your um the land you've inherited from uh from papa that's max Mm element
1: yes um all my life uh the land on our uh, reserve um, has always been farmed. That's all that I've ever seen and known. Um, So I don't think much has changed in all of my life to the amount of uh, fields and and, um, uh, corn crops and bean fields that there are here on Chippewa. Chippewa is uh, uh, 10 square miles uh, big. So that's about 10,000 acres. That's um, how much land that we have left. We we used to have two reserves, but um, it was through the Big Bear Creek Land Claim that we were able to prove that it was stolen from us and that uh, we, we were um, compensated. Um, and this compensation that we received was um, the only route that we could take because Canada told us that they would not give us back the land, so um, here we were in impoverished. we had no money above what the federal government gave us uh, through indian affairs and and many most of our people were living below the poverty line, so we made the, the decision to accept the uh what was uh, approved of us in the land claim and that's the investment that we made um, that, had, that is doing a lot of this programming that we're able to do on Chippewa. But um, all my life I have not seen a, a change in how the um, land is managed. It is mainly uh, land that's rented to farmers uh, who are non-native. They come to our land, and as far as I know, we do not have any um, management system um, historically. I think they're working on it now because we really don't know what they put on the land. And so um, over the years, we've uh, seen the quality of our light of our water uh, diminish. Uh, we've seen uh, the animals and, and the amount of animals and species that live here diminish. And um, to the point where uh, many of us uh, having to live in this uh, technological uh, age are distracted and we're not really seeing what's happening on the land anymore. So um, this COVID um, did something uh, to to my way of thinking about the land. Um, what happened was that I, just like many of us on the on the reserve who rent our land to farmers, I I inherited uh, my father's land, and um, I just carried on the practice of renting my land to farmers. And so COVID happened, and I think a lot of farmers uh, went bankrupt or. Uh, had extreme difficulty, and so the farmer who was renting my land uh, told me that he couldn't pay me rent, and besides that, he couldn't he he would not be able to rent my land the next year. So here I was out, you know, all this money that I that was you know I was beginning to um, see as income for for to help help me out uh, to manage my house. And and to help my children, and um, then it was like I was thinking, what do I do now? Do I start knocking on doors, making phone calls, find another farmer? And then I thought about how my kids used to tell me, "Mom, don't farm the land anymore. Um, Do you know what they're doing to the land? You know, they're they're poisoning it." And so that thought came to my mind, and I said, "Okay." Maybe I just won't farm the land anymore. But uh, I didn't know what to do with the land because I had no knowledge of of how to uh, reclaim a land to its natural state because I don't have no idea of how plants grow. So I I asked questions and and people uh, in my circle and friends, um, I asked them. Questions. And, and so I had learned that there's a program that will help landowners uh, turn their land back into a natural state, like a grassland. And and that appealed to me. And so I looked into it more and I found people to help me. And so that's what we're going to do. I'm not going to farm my land anymore. I'm going to turn it into prairie grass. We're going to build a pond on this uh, one one large lot that I have. So that uh the animals and the, and the um, birds uh can rehabitate the land, and it was through these conversations that I had learned that there is a lot of species that don't live here anymore, and um one being the uh quail and I remember my dad when we were kids growing up. My dad and his friends used to go and hunt on the land, and we ate what what they hunted we ate deer and we ate. Whale and we ate duck and and that's a practice that's kind of rare here now, so recently uh, uh, my culture language and heritage department hosted a youth and elder camp, and we had asked a young man who we know to be a hunter on the land to to be a part of our conversation about the land and he came and he told us the the state of of hunting practices on the reserve that I think that we need to be alarmed about and that we need to help because like I said, this age of this technology has distracted us so much that we're not a community that talks and, and gathers anymore. And, and that's that's the work that I recognize that we have to do so that we can build, rebuild our relationship to the land to provide a space for these species to come back here and live so that our hunters can, can uh, have practiced the traditional Anishinaabe practices of living on the land and respecting the land and all of creation. And that all of that work is needed for our language revitalization because our language is a sacred language. It's a sacred language that is tied to the activity on the land. And our language is a verb based language. It's not a noun based language like this English language that we speak and that we're locked into speaking. Um, So we have to have the activity in the the, um, traditional ways in order for that to be where our language lives again.
0: I think that's a really amazing way of uh, like this, the, all the story that you just told encapsulates this idea of rematriation. So the return of land, or um, sometimes when we talk about land back, which uh, I think is a very important political statement um, that is just a contemporary form of what our people have always been saying. And that is that we never ceded or surrendered um, our relationship to land, uh, our responsibility or our sacred stewardship, um, principles and, and, and knowledges about the land. And I think when, we, when we're when we talking about land back, sometimes I think uh, to a scholar named wazi who's a Dakota scholar and was my former professor uh, at the University of Victoria, and she had talked about the return and restitution of lands and what that means when the lands are actually sick and ill. And so with projects like this, um, this endeavor that my mom is doing for the lands uh, that she inherited, I think is really deeply um, an embodiment of rematriation and, and connecting it to how our identity as Anishinaabe people with our language and our worldview and our thought is connected to the wellness of the land is, is really profound. And I like how you talk about how the language is connected to the land because our language is embodied. And if our bodies aren't on the land uh, and our bodies aren't, um, and I don't mean that in in terms of, you know, working the land or producing on the land, just even being with and on the land and embodying uh, the practices of working on the land. That is what our ancestors did and working in harmony with the land. Uh, and not in these modes of domination over the land, which is which is, of course, I think, a very Western or settler, certainly settler colonial approach to to um, to land practice. And so that embodiment, that felt experiences that Diane Millian talks about, um, who and she talks about how our felt uh, knowledges and embodiments as indigenous women, our, our real knowledges. And so I, when I was doing some of my research for my doctoral work, which was looking at our relationship with our governance systems or our, our dotem system and how uh, the dotem system is a reflection of our land-based relationships. And in order for us to reclaim that governance system to get out of the Indian Act, um, we have to have a felt connection and embodiment of our dotem system. And that dotom system is land-based, mm-hmm. uh, that Dotum system is language-based. So land, language, identity, governance, um, belonging, uh, relationship, it's all connected to the land. But our land around us, as Mom was saying, mm-hmm. is, um, is tied up in agribusiness uh, of Southern Ontario. Mm-hmm. And if you look at a map of Southern Ontario, You'll see, really, I show this to my students, there's dense parts in the map of Southern Ontario, and those parts are either conservation areas or parks or reserves. And so agribusiness farmers come to the reserve, they rent land from landowners who are in poverty mm-hmm. and need the, the yearly income that renting out land comes from. Mm-hmm. And so there is no money to be made in, in restoring the land and in rematriation. And that's fine, but it's also a position that many people in our community can't necessarily take. And that to me is concerning and worrying that we are subjected to and made to, to have to survive in a system of, of mm-hmm. capitalism mm-hmm. and settler colonialism um, to compromise our the integrity of our land and our relationship to land to even survive.
1: Yeah, that also speaks to how we got in this position that we are in the first place. Like, I don't know how much percentage of our land is farmed, but you could look at it on the map. It is a it is a, a substantial amount of land that is farmed. And so uh, prior to this time, to this era, like in my dad's time or my grandfather's time, our people were so marginalized. We couldn't get jobs. in in the economy out here because of racism, because of marginalization, because of uh, looking down on women, you know, it wasn't safe to go and get a job. And so, you know, when you take the power away from people, well, then you can manipulate them. And so that's how we became a nation now that we do have a lot of farming going on. It's been something we, we inherited, but I think it's now, a conversation that we're having and how do we work and 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 deal with this so that we can return to our Anishinaabe ways and be the stewards of the land that we had been for thousands of years. Because this 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 situation that we're in, it's it's been something that only took two hundred years to, to create.
0: Thank you for sharing that. That was um uh just even even bringing in that conversation about the relationship between um uh the sort of the ways in which settler agriculture sort of intervenes on um intervenes on land and and um i just think i think that that that's something that we um i think in in dominant society we don't pay we don't actually pay a ton of attention to and so i think that um, the way that you frame that in relationship to rematriation and land back is just really um, important. So thank you for sharing that. Adrienne, did you want to um, ask your question?
2: I'll be honest, I, I'm i having a hard time because you're telling the story of the questions we've already asked. Like We have them <laughs> written down, but due oh. to what I know is how most of my interviews work, Um, We start someone on a topic and and we just let the stories go out. Um, So thanks for making those things super easy. Um, Mm -hmm. We did have a specific question about um, in what way rematriation applies to you, but you have talked about that Um, because it's not just a concept. It's not just a, a conceptual thing. You're actually talking about how your mom's, Land is being embodied in that and and what you're doing with it, um, so the only question really for me then is are there specific things in your community are you taking that into your work? are you adding that to you know the tools and the places that your community are able to see and understand more about that because if you're already doing that yourself, um, where are you each actually and and you're doing the same thing I think in your work so Where are you sharing that? And what are the, are there specific things that you really hope to get across when it comes to that concept of rematriation and what it's doing?
1: Well, our department's not the only one that was created with our trust money, with our land claim money. Um, We've also built a treaty lands and environment department. And we've also created a justice department. These are all brand new departments, and we've got tons of work that we we as um, knowing what has, knowing the history of our people and what has happened to our people. We know the work that has to be done. It's, it's, it's a lot of, um, it's very overwhelming, but um, we're doing great work here on Chippewa. Uh, and um, for now we have to be in our silos because because of infrastructure. Um, uh, we've inherited a land uh, that is poorly, that has a very, very poor infrastructure. I used to sit on council and this was a big problem that we had is that we cannot build any more buildings on this reserve because our water system cannot handle uh, many more buildings we are we are building houses because that is a great need that we have on our growing population and for our families but as far as as building uh administrative and learning places we we are very very uh unfortunate and um poor in that back in the day when the water line was put in on the reserve uh deals or or, um, savings were made to where uh, the pipe that went in the ground uh, was only is only a four inch line compared to what should have been put in which was an eight inch line. And that's from one Indian Affairs, um, uh, accepting the lowest bid for the contractor to put the, the lines in. And then just like what has historically happened in Indian country, there's cutbacks and there's um, people who, who make a huge profit. So I attribute that to the to our poor infrastructure. Uh, last uh, winter we had language classes, and we 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 managed to find a space on the reserve uh, to host our language classes, and it didn't have no bathroom. didn't have no bathroom for our elder to use and she got locked out um, from the other other main building because they locked their doors at at noon so you know we have a real real um, need here and and we're we're having a hard time
0: yeah so i think there's definitely some challenges and limits to what we can do with rematriation Uh, And with the work, the really necessary work that needs to happen in order to make those moves of uh, what we want to do, and that is decolonizing. So decolonizing in this sense for, of course, decolonization is not a metaphor, but in this sense, as Indigenous peoples or Anishinaabe people using this term, we're talking about decolonizing the land, which is how I understand rematriation, which is restoring uh, native species to the land and restoring the land so that it makes a space and a, uh, sorry, to restore the land so that it is conducive to to producing life again for the species that are meant to be here. And so that's very difficult to do. It's a very um, straightforward idea, but it's very difficult when we have so many limitations and challenges in our everyday lives, like the lack of housing or even just poor drinking water. Um, we're in and out of boil water advisories. Um, and that just the, the lack of basic access to needs like water is, is very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wanted to talk about um, this. Oh, gosh, I may have lost it. Um, oh, um, connecting land back or, or rematriation to my own scholarship in my work. Um, I somehow found my way doing this work in critiquing the approach to reconciliation. Uh, And this just came out of the fact that I was teaching courses to non-indigenous students at X university. And I thought, uh, you know, I'm putting all of my labor into teaching non-indigenous Canadians or just Canadians, I should say, uh, teaching Canadians how to address or how to respond responsibly to the fact that we are in an ongoing um, genocide, an ongoing genocide of our of our peoples and our ways of life. And so I thought, well, the one thing that we have is reconciliation. So I started Teaching that and noticing that not a lot of the calls to action have been addressed in the last five years, six years since the reconciliation uh, calls to action and and the final report have been released. And this was a massive undertaking of our generation, even the the generation before us, it was the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples uh, and over the last 30 years, over 1,000 recommendations have come out of intellectual labor about how to be in right relations uh, with us, you know, between Canada and and our nations. And most often, these tend to focus on things like the infrastructure or the, the public sphere of Canada itself. And I'm really interested in thinking about what it means for us to envision intense dreaming, as as Diane Million would call it, uh, worlds that are free of of these restrictions and these challenges. What is it like to to re-embody uh, and to reclaim Anishinaabe odzwin or the the way of being a, a Anishinaabe? And it means the land. That's it. Just it comes down to the land. And when most of our territory is is polluted uh, as has been subjected to extreme violence. Um, uh, you know, as we know, as the famous report, violence on the land is violence on our bodies. And I don't see reconciliation necessarily going into that particular conversation. And so that's kind of the link between, or I guess I should say, the discrepancy between the work that I do and, and that I'm being asked to do by a public, um, a Canadian public or my public facing scholarship and the work that actually means a lot to me as Anishinaabekwine and, and to my family and, and, and my home. And so I'm still figuring out how to connect these two um, as, and as much as I can and in the spaces where I do and am asked to speak. I often point to the fact that reconciliation is a very nice aspiration idea that's in this present, the safe present that Canadians are interested in being, where they can check a box and feel good about themselves. But it's actually a much more profound problem that reconciliation is the aspiration. It's a management of feelings, as Michelle Daigle would say, to want to reconcile for harms that continue to happen and for harms that aren't even registered to a Canadian public against um, harms that are are outside of even the Canadian public's imagination, which is harm to the land. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it is coming around to be the problem of climate change. And Indigenous knowledges, Anishinaabe, the way of knowing uh, the good mind and all of the the Indigenous relationships and knowledges that we've built and the technologies that we have that we have uh, produced through our creative and intellectual labor over thousands of years in relationship with this land um, is just seen as, I guess, nothing it's not even really understood at all by the Canadian public Uh, they're asking us to reconcile with settler colonialism I think and that to me is disturbing and I don't know how much um, every day I wonder how much energy I can continue to put to that when things like rematriating the land and uh, embodying and putting my body on the land um, call for me to (laughs) to do that work Thank you for for sharing that it it really um, the, the other sort of question I had was about some some of your concerns, you sort of answered this just now about, you know, the ways in which um, something like rematriation or Anishinaabe ways of knowing or relations to the land might get sort of taken up by the settler colonial state in really worrisome ways what you know what might your concerns be. I, but I really liked how you spoke about imagination and I think one thing that um I guess as as somebody from my like as a settler person when I'm speaking to other settler people I think one of the things I hear a lot actually is is just a sheer like lack of imagination. It's that sort of whenever I think I think whenever folks try and have conversations that like that work outside of or imagine outside of what we currently know to be sort of, you know, around us, is is that common refrain of of you know, um, but you know, that's not the world we live in kind of thing, and and I often it ma- it makes me often think about how um, how short sighted or how, how unimaginative. Um, that sort of way of thinking is right if you if you only think of land as like a thing as an object as something that isn't relational and something that doesn't have have relationships like sort of you know um inter intertwining relationships then i think it it really like erodes one's ability to actually think create sort of think outside of um that sort of settler mentality Um, of land as as a sort of commodity or land as just this thing that needs to be sort of um, managed or dominated or um, so I I, I really I really um, like how you how you spoke about um, you know the work to think outside of that and what it means but um, if you had sort of any Any thoughts around um, or further thoughts around the ways that um, institutions right now are are sort of taking that up. Um, um, It would be great to hear hear your thoughts around that and also potentially, I mean, um, in terms of responsibilities and in terms of sort of, you know, um, responsibilities as treaty people here um, in this context um if you have any any insights around um around that around what uh within the context of settler colonialism in Canada what what might need to happen on the ground or what might need to happen I know Ava you just sort of shared some of your own um your own concerns you know in the context of sharing you know sharing or teaching with with settler uh students or white students um but if you have any sort of further thoughts around that gosh i was thinking something as you were talking when you just <laughs> uh treaty yes so i think i've been asked to speak about treaty because this is the way that it is understood by canadians to say there is something that we can rely upon or there was this is the the logic of reconciliation right the logic of reconciliation being that we can return to a relationship with enough hard work and diligence and goodwill on both of our parties we can return back to that conciliatory relationship and the problem with that is even in those conciliatory relationships in the beginning or the the supposed conciliatory relationships in the beginning, there was still this arrogance on the part of Europeans that they had seen themselves as more mature and advanced societies that were beyond the capacity of Indigenous peoples at the time. And in fact, there's a really important scholarship by Toby Rollo, Uh, from Lakehead University that he used quite a bit to demonstrate this and this idea of of misopathy or the hatred of children. And how Europeans understand and conceptualize childhood is really important in understanding our first relationships because, precisely because indigenous peoples were cast as children and immature uh, non-political subjects, um, non-mature primitive societies. And so in my mind, reconciliation is impossible because there's already a perceived power imbalance between Canadians and, um, and, and Indigenous peoples. So wherever and whenever we do step into spaces of attempting to reconcile, there's usually a lot of um, performance That is not necessarily based in or rooted in a a willingness or a humility to learn and and understand or even give leadership to Indigenous peoples uh, around um, topics like rematriation or land back or jurisdiction or governance or education or any political issue or even just anything in general, any, any topic in general. Um, and we saw this last night during the debate, sorry to bring the debate into this. But there was a discussion about reconciliation, and most of the leaders just stopped and stood there and said, We need to listen to Indigenous peoples, which is, I think, the go to line when you're not really entirely sure what needs to be done, um, which sounds great in words, but doesn't, but never ends up in action. And we see that with the structures of uh, the economic structures, the the resource extraction structures that are all oriented toward uh, Canadian and settler dominance over um, these systems and disregard absolutely for indigenous um, conceptions or relationships or, or um, indigenous knowledges of how to be in good relation to the land and so, I think that these institutions, university institutions, are limited in their responses to, uh, and even in um, in their, their work and support of, of a lot of our endeavors. I hope to see that change because I do see spaces of leadership. I, I think that's one of the reasons why I joined Yellowhead Institute, because I wanted to be in a space where we have indigenous leadership over uh indigenous leadership on certain topics and conversations which is very exciting um and i think um i think that's all I'll say for now and if you have any follow up i hope i answered your question because i i think i just kind of meandered around yeah yeah you <laughs> No, you you certainly did. Uh, can I just ask a little like a, a quick follow up just about if you have any further thoughts around, um, even uh, specifically, it, it brought me back to um, the, the debates as well. Oh, man. Um, but the relationship, if you have any sort of um, thoughts around the relationship to how the relationship of patriarchy intervenes in all of this. Um, in particular ways, especially when we're talking about rematriation, um, I know that's like a big thing to add in. But if it, I, I, um, I just wanted to hear if, hear your thoughts or hear your insights around around the the way in which patriarchy plays a role in all of this. <laughs> yes, I like shifted in my seat in excitement, <laughs> excited for this question. <laughs> I think patriarchy is like the root of all of this. This idea, the mon- the idea of monocropping, the idea of of profiting off of land, the whole system that was set up to make profits from uh, crops and to manipulate crops to uh, to do service for for human in societies that are of course headed by men, where and where men have most social power. I think. In matrilineal societies or societies where there is gender equity and Indigenous societies more more broadly and generally, there is a, a respect for the life that exists inherently within land and within plants. And that in good relationship with plants, plants can provide for us um, and they will um, um, it's not necessarily a service or a dominion over plants in, in our worldview, in the Anishinaabe worldview. It's more that plants will reciprocate uh, if, we, if we are respectful and, and um, understanding of them. So actually, we conceptualize plants as having kin, just, kinships just like us. So there's, uh, if you read Wendy McCone's Geniuses book, uh, and she, it, our knowledge is not primitive, and she writes about oral tradition and knowledges of Anishinaabe people describing plants as families, uh, meaning that the trees would provide uh, for other plants and other kinships so that they could make a good land for, or a good space um, and environment for their grandchildren. So we talk about plants and animals as literally having the exact same social structures as us. And this comes from, this can only come from a perspective and a worldview that ascribes the same autonomy and agency to a being that is not the same species as us. Where I don't necessarily see that happening in Western worldview, Uh, in Western knowledges, there is a kind of minimization of the worlds of anything that is not human. There's a surprise when when animals and plants are being observed to have exact same social structures as us, I think. And I think Western science is just now coming around to this idea that we've known for millennia, and that is that our whole world is a system and you can't take one piece out of it without disrupting the whole system but that that idea that you can manipulate it and control it is a very patriarchal idea it's a very it's it's very much rooted in the the same worldview that produces a system where men uh straight white men are at the top of the hierarchy and this doesn't necessarily Align at all is completely counter to a lot of our ideas Uh, and, of course, we know that patriarchy. um, Is a new or an invasive concept in indigenous societies, meaning that it does exist in our societies, but it's requiring a lot of resistance and returning and and rematriation of our worldviews and our knowledges uh, to get to that space of equity again of, of gender equity and respect for um um all all beings outside of human beings any idea
1: um maybe a difference or maybe something that could be um shared that can um put this in perspective is um our language difference and that is um how we um in a in English we say you know Describe an older uh, woman, and and that's that we call them an old woman. Um, And that can be diminutive. Um, In our language, uh, we call an older woman de moyen. And de moyen means literally means uh, uh, someone who carries the world on her shoulders in other words, uh, has a woman who has knowledge of life and who shares that. And so worldview and perspective in these languages uh, is, is a huge, uh, there's a huge gap. And I think um, that in this Day and age in this time of two thousand twenty-one, many of our women are finding our voices, and we're finding our voices enough to speak and be heard. We couldn't do I couldn't do this ten years ago. I I would never have been able to talk in front of people. And I think um, uh, being raised by my mother's generation and seeing the fractured and, and devastated lives that they they led because of residential school and what it had done to them. Um, made me always wonder, wonder why um, they were like that. When when I looked outside into mainstream society and seen all these people who are confident and living beautiful lives, but why were our people so traumatized?
2: Because of the patriarchy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Thank you, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, uh, I think Adrienne um had had another question around. Um, there you are, Adrienne.
1: <laughs> no.
0: I
2: have the worst internet. Res internet this week has been awful. Just so you guys know.
0: <laughs> um, We're also on the res. The, the, the so last question, two- and,
2: and no shock. Yeah. right we're we're meeting in the middle of fuzzy pictures and like sounding like charlie brown's teacher yeah (laughs) um the one question and it's it's our last one um how does rematriation in this whole conversation connect to food sovereignty i mean you guys have already touched on and the relationships of of the connection of all things together but i we just really want to pointedly talk about food sovereignty, because like I said, this is where I come to most conversations, usually, usually by accident, and mostly just because I like to talk about food things. But um, where do those where does that part of this fit into this conversation for you guys?
1: Um,
0: do you want to talk about? I want to talk about sugar bushing. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. cool. <laughs> go okay. okay. Um,
1: Actually, maybe you should, because you
0: you tell it so good.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because
0: you started it, I just I just come in and enjoy it. You're the one that organizes it, so uh-huh. I'll, and I'll maybe I'll um
1: okay um uh-huh. uh pitch in. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, four years ago, uh, I had um I had just started working with our language program here on uh, Chippewas of the Thames. And they had started um in the in this newly formed culture department started um maple syrup maple syrup making and uh this is uh something that i had always known that our people had done but i really had no understanding or any knowledge of it so there were some members of our community who just got a hammer and some sp- sp- what do you call them spigots spigots yeah. And went to the trees and and started uh, tapping them for maple water, and just uh, learn as you go to where now this is a movement happening on the Chippewas of the Thames First Nation, and and amongst many of our First Nations all across uh, the land, uh, because we recognize that it's our uh, traditional um, activity on the land, um, and and. Many writers are writing about this uh process of maple syrup making and how it relates to uh reclamation of our uh, relationship to the land. Um the Anishinaabe uh, people have a uh have many stories that uh we share with each other about uh the creation of many things uh, on the land and these are in the form of our of our Nanabush stories. Nanabush was the first man of creation, and um there is a legend where um it was because of his actions that he created uh, maple uh water to run like it does and so um it's through that story that uh, the, the result of that story is that um, Nanabush helped the people to become community again and to work together and to be respectful of one another, to be able to work together. And so th- we find that we're in that time of that uh, legend because now we're slowing down, we're we're going outside, we're breathing the air of the land, and we're working together, uh, uh, managing a, a gift that the creator has made for us with the help of Nana Bush. And, and then we're, we're making something that we can all enjoy and that nourishes us because we know it's good medicine too. And, and so now this is uh, an activity that hosts our language revitalization our culture and their heritage and
0: yeah. And so the, the connection between rematriation and food sovereignty, um, when we start to reclaim our practices like this, I think it emboldens us to uh, and, and inspires us to continue to think about what else we can gather and and what else we can um, reclaim in terms of how to feed ourselves from the land. So now, uh, you know, with conversations around making syrup, it's you, you don't just pour it over pancakes, right? So people are saying, okay, maybe we should get some we should start reclaiming our our fish our fishing practices. So the fish um, fish traps is that, what are they called the fish roll nets roll nets? yeah, so the roll nets uh, that people make and and gathering fish from the river and hunting and uh, some, we have hunters in the community and they distribute um, meat. So it's, I wanna say that, I, I wanna say it's a reclamation of 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 these practices, but it's kind of as Leanne Simpson says, as we have always done, like we've always done this. Mm-hmm. And so it's this food sovereignty, while I don't know um, that many families, certainly some families, Draw a lot of their nutrition from the land in terms of hunting and fishing, um, but it's still something that I think we can continue to to work on. And so another well, thing is the the garden, right?
1: Yeah, the gardening. Um, and and with this project that I have in in revitalizing the land, um, I understand that I'll be able to create a habitat that will be host to species at risk and we'll be able to get uh, quail to come back to our lands and so this will uh, provide uh, another uh, bird for our hunters to be able to uh, feed their families with again Um, so there's many things that we're doing for food sovereignty and Just today we harvested Indian corn from our garden uh, and we um, husked it it, and we we braided it. So um, we now understand that the processes that we hang this to to dry and then um, come uh, when it snows we'll be able to um, make corn soup with that and, and also to save seed for next year. And so it was just in that... This conversation this morning that we had that uh, we just recognized and seen all of the curriculum that we can build around this, this um, growing of Indian corn that will um, that can fit into our school, which is much needed.
0: And what's cool about this corn is the, all the corn silk and the corn silk being medicine, um, as I understand it, um woman's medicine, but I'm sure there's other uses for it as well. So I think what's amazing about rematriation of the land, the the, the land being well again uh, and providing food and, and having the sovereignty or the ability to feed ourselves from the land, there's also Along with it, the um, sovereignty of, of our wellness or the sovereignty of our education, and um, the and through all of that, uh, we we rematriate so much more uh, than just the land. We rematriate our knowledges, our our medicines, and our relationships and our food. And it's just just as everything is, it's all connected, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's really powerful. This land, and this is all encapsulated and, and meant by when we're talking about land back. Uh, And but we're also saying uh, we need to go back to the land too. Yeah, it sounds like what you're saying too is it's not just it's not just one thing. It's not an either or. It's not merely material or physical or spiritual or cultural. It's it's a it's a sort of interconnection between all of those things that we need to be paying attention to. Well, I think that's sort of. it for our questions that that was really fantastic I want to thank you both for taking the time to do this uh to do this with us and um I feel like I I learned so much just listening to the both of you. You for having us I'm I thank you for the opportunity to be in dialogue because I wanted you know when I got your emails like this is great I, but I just can't talk about any of this stuff without my mom because my mom is the one that embodies all of this. She's the one that does <laughs> all. Of this. And for me, I'm like, oh, I I go out there and I talk about this, what I read about, you know, and and as much as I talk about all of this, I I really only get to participate a small amount because I'm so busy with my work, right? And mm-hmm. so it's it's really mom who does a lot of the the on the ground rematriation work, um, in the community, and so. Yeah, I, I'm so grateful to include mm-hmm. her and in, and her embodied practice of rematriation with you.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, for sure. I have sure. to tell you guys, um, when I defended my dissertation, my mom was sitting at the edge of the room listening, because uh, of course it was done by Zoom, right? You know, all the usual mm-hmm. things. Um, and and we got done, and she she was like she was super excited and. They were doing their formal you know we're gonna decide and talk about this while you're while you go offline and my mom came over and she looked at me and she said um all of all of your work is is like just stories about me (laughs) and i'm like well yeah mom
0: (laughs) of course it is
2: and she's she was just like she had that moment where she was like this is super cute but also i had no idea (laughs) because I've spent my entire life telling her I don't listen, right? Like I, every good rebellious child, I'm like, I don't listen to my mom. I tell my students, I'm like, don't tell my mom that I told you this because she's the one who taught me. And, and I've made like a career out of telling people that I don't listen to my mom. And then for her to listen on the side of, of the room to the discovery that my entire dissertation is the story of learning from my mom and getting other people to be able to learn from her because same thing, she embodies what it is to be, you know, all the stuff that I prize and that I tell people is important is we we have a career, Nancy, of telling people to listen to our moms because that's yeah. really and truly what we're supposed to do.
0: Yeah. And that's sure oh, pretty great.
1: Because <laughs> yeah, we carried a world on their shoulders. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I know there's great work going on all over <laughs> in, our, in our communities. And it's just amazing and I think it's our time now. Like, you know, there was a residential school on this reserve for 100 years. It did a lot of damage. I worked with the residential school survivors to build our monument and our gathering and our in our presentation to co- to commemorate the survivors and I learned so much of the terrible things that happened here that it's a wonder we survived, but we're a strong and tough people and sometimes we're too tough you know, on each other, but we're learning because we understand that that's not our way to be hard and mean and cruel. Uh, we are very uh, kind people and I think that's probably what was our downfall t- for us to get taken advantage of in the first place but we are good people.
0: I want to thank Eva and Nancy for their time and their work and for sharing their knowledge and experiences with us. This was such an inspiring and nourishing conversation. I also want to thank my fellow collaborators and friends, Taryn Giacomini, Lauren Kepkowitz, Danielle Boissonneau, Adrian Lickers-Xavier, and Ayla Fenton. And thank you to our research assistants, both past and present, Stephanie Morningstar, Sonia Hill, and Jessica Ross. As well, thank you to Jaron Richard for all of your wonderful tech support. We'd also like to thank the National Farmers Union Indigenous Solidarity Working Group for their ongoing collaboration and support, as well as the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council for their funding. Okay, well, that's all for this episode and thanks for listening and uh, we'll see you soon.